Our scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 51. We'll be reading from verses 9 through 16. This can be found on page 612 in your pew Bibles. Page 612, Isaiah chapter 51, verses 9 through 16. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And ransomed, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down speedily shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Do keep your Bibles open at that passage in Isaiah that we've just read. There are a lot of people who are waiting for Christmas, and some are getting quite excited. There was a bunch of children outside the front of my house yesterday afternoon who were getting very excited at Christmas. They'd stopped to watch me put up my Christmas decorations uh, because I was more excited than they were. And I'm looking forward to next Sunday. I've already booked my opening hymn with our organist so that he plays it. Uh, O come, O come, Emmanuel, my favorite of all carols. So come out next week and sing it with me. Anyway, waiting time can be exciting time. Waiting time can also be very frustrating and fruitless time. When I was at college, we studied Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot. And uh, after we studied it together and dissected it in the classroom, we all went to see the play uh, be on stage, uh, I was going to say live on stage, but perhaps barely alive would be a better description. Uh, the play starts with, with these two men standing by a tree and starting to speak. Let's go. The other, yes, let's go. The instructions, they do not move. And that basically is the play from there on. Uh, And after a long time, after nothing happens, they say, we wait, we are bored. He throws up his hand. No, don't protest. We are bored to death. There's no denying it. Good. A diversion comes along and what do we do? We let it go to waste. In an instant, all will vanish and we'll be alone once more in the midst of nothingness. 
Samuel Beckett's play captured that sense of nothingness that prevailed at that period in the 20th century. There are periods in life where waiting is futile and fruitless. And there are periods in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church which give no evidence of God acting, of God doing anything, of God acting particularly in defense of his own cause. And these verses we've read together this morning teach us that waiting time need not be wasted time. These verses are helpful in that they help us to capture the mood of God's people at those periods in the history of the church where we find ourselves waiting for God to act. And we don't see any evidence that he is. In fact, all the evidence points in the opposite direction. Perhaps as you gather here in light of all that we've been seeing and reading in the press and watching on television, you feel that we are at one of those times. Everything is falling apart. Will the center hold? And here we are. And what are we doing? We are, as God's people, waiting for something. But I say that waiting time need not be wasted time. And there are three reasons given to us here for that. First of all, waiting time is time to pray. (laughs) Well, you say, of course, this is church. You were going to say that anyway. I mean, that's that's a religious thing to do, like giving the offering. If If you're ever in dire straits, your plane is about to crash, either collect an offering or pray, do something religious, whatever it might be. But that is exactly what the prophet is describing. He's speaking to these people. If you look at verse 9, they are praying. They're they're perhaps being rather forward and aggressive in their prayer, but they are certainly praying. We know that these people that that are being addressed here, or we're being given the lines of these people in the great dramatic story of God's redeeming activity in the world, and the Holy Spirit is giving Isaiah the script, Uh, these people are probably people at a particular point in history, as we'll see in a moment. But they find themselves at at a point in history where God seems to be inactive. He is not doing anything. In many ways, we've been set up to think about these people earlier on. In verse 5, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out. With my arms I will judge the peoples, the coastlands, hope for me and for my arm. They wait. God is speaking about the people who've heard his promises, who've heard the good news, who've heard of the news of the coming of God's personal action. The the arm of God gives you a sense of, of his personal involvement, his personal action in power. The arm of God is often described as a mighty arm. Now, you say to me, but Lean, God is without body parts and passions. God is a spirit. He does not have an arm. That's absolutely right. I'm glad that you've picked up some good theology. But the arm of the Lord is an anthropomorphism. God is communicating to us in language that we humans Uh, We anthropoi, we humans can understand. He does not have an arm, but in terms of his revelation, he has a mighty arm, a mighty arm, a strong arm that acts personally. 
So the arm of God is God's personal action, his powerful action. They are waiting for God to act in person and with power. And that's, they come to God and they cry to him because of that. Earlier on in chapter 52, uh, they'd been told about the action of God through the Messiah. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. You cannot get more personal as when God takes on a human body, becomes a human being, and God becomes flesh. You don't get any more personal than God in the flesh. There is the greatest demonstration of God coming in person and with power in his Messiah, Jesus. So that's what they're asking for. And they're asking, using this language, this, this anthropological ang- language, they anthropomorph, yeah, that's right, I said it right. Uh, but I can't repeat it because I'm in a hurry. They, they say this, they cry to God, and they say, awake. In other words, the, the idea they've got is that somehow or other God's arm has fallen asleep. Maybe you've, ever, you've had one of those beds. We have one of those beds in our house. We don't warn anybody who comes to stay with us which one it is. But we have a bed that used to be our bed. And in that bed, I would wake up every morning on that bed. And I would find this weird thing lying over me. And you, you just kind of threw it around. And it was absolutely dead. It was as dead as the day is long. And as, as these people pray to God, it's as if... They're waiting for God to act and God's arm's dead. And they're saying, would you lift up your arm? And it's as if in their prayers, they're trying to awaken God's arm into action. That's an amazing prayer, isn't it? It's a prayer of faith. They believe that God can act. I believe they believe that God has promised to act. And in their faith, they're addressing the Lord himself. They're calling on his name. They're addressing him with frustration, do you see? There is an element of frustration, I think. Or is it frustration alongside their faith? It's, 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 you know, the believer very often finds themselves frustrated with what appears to be the inaction of God. And yet, even in such times, they pray to God. They ask God to act. They ask God to work. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old. It's a a kind of holy impatience. You know, there is a difference between no faith and little faith. No faith denies God to be the creator and Jesus as the savior. Little faith affirms both God as creator and in Christ as redeemer. But little faith sometimes struggles. It struggles in the midst of doubts. And I think perhaps that's going on here. But I want you to notice that even as they pray, as they pray, they are feeding their faith. They are fueling their faith by what they do when they pray. And this is what to do when you're in the waiting period. Start to pray and do what these people did here. 
Awake, they say. Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old. What do they do? They remind themselves that the God to whom they are speaking is not like the gods of the nations round about. Around about Israel then. Around about Jesus in the days in which Jesus was here in the flesh. The gods of many of the nations of our world. Today these gods perhaps operate at the level of the philosophical. They, they may operate at the level of the intellectual. They may offer, operate at the level of the secular. They may, may operate in terms of a spiritual or, or, or a kind of uh, ethereal level. But the one thing you have to say about all the gods of the world is that none of them, none of them, depends on his actions in history for his own credibility. It is the reality, the thing that distinguishes the Judeo-Christian God is that he is a God who has tied his character and his reputation to true history that happened. That's what these people are reminding themselves of. They think about their past. They're thinking particularly of the Exodus. It's already been revealed that the Messiah, Jesus, when he comes, the Messiah servant, when he comes, is going to bring about an even greater event than the event of the Exodus. But for the people in Isaiah's day, the Exodus was the last great, great event of God's action in the world. It was defining of Israel as a nation. You know what happened. There was that night when the angel of judgment, the angel of death was going to come. And he was going to sweep through every house in Egypt, killing the firstborn. Only those in Egypt, whether they were Jew or not, who sheltered under the blood of the lamb would be spared. And that night the angel came. Judgment fell in every house in Egypt except those homes that were dabbed with the blood of the Lamb. Next day they got up and they left. They made their way out into the desert. They found themselves trapped between the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh. Pharaoh who is described here, or Egypt here, is described by the word Rahab, uh, which was uh, a, a typical name that's used in some of the Psalms for for, for Egypt and the dragon which is used for both Egypt and Babylon the, the might of an enemy opposed to the people of God there they were trapped and you'll remember that God told Moses to reach out his staff over the sea and the, the sea parted and the mud on the sea floor was transformed into a way do you see the language that's being used here as in the days of old, you dried up the sea and the waters of the great deep and you made in the depths of the sea a way that is a road that is a stable, firm road on which the people of God, a million of them, crossed over to the other side. That was a miracle. Can you imagine this? There are these towering water, if you've seen Charlton Heston as Moses. Remember the, the really fake towers of water on either side. Uh, I mean, it was, it was a long time ago. They'd do better today. But there they were, the towers of water. They cross over on dry land to the other side. Not one bit of mud. Not one bit of water. Cross they go to the other side. And this million plus people are standing on the other side looking back. 
across the road between the towers of water to the army of Pharaoh as they descend down, following them into the water. And as they come, the firm way on which they walked dissolves back into the mud that was originally there and they get bogged down in the mud and the waters come and destroy the armies of Pharaoh. It was a mighty act of God. It was written into the consciousness of every Israelite. It is so firmly embedded in their history that to this day they still celebrate it every Passover. The mighty action of God. And so how do these people feed their faith when they come to talk to God? They remind themselves of God's action in the past. One of the reasons I get excited about Christmas, apart from the lights, which I love, and the decorations, which I enjoy doing, and I do it because I love it, and my wife takes them down, that's a great deal. Uh, and I go out and drown my sorrows while she's doing it. I hate, hate that day when they all have to come down. I put it off as long as I can. Anyway, that's just a little bit of, you didn't need to know that. That's too much information. Uh, and I've absolutely forgotten what I was saying to get back to where, to, to where I was. But, but the, point of the, matter, the point of the matter is that as these people remind themselves of what is done in the past, so we believing people remind ourselves of what happened that first Christmas. Something greater than the Exodus. Something greater than the creation of the universe. When the God who is bigger than the universe took on our humanity and was found in fashion as a man. That is a staggering moment. That is a staggering moment in our history. And when that same man is pierced and nailed to the cross, as the servant of the Lord, bearing our sins and our sorrows and making them his very own and taking the burden to Calvary and suffering and dying alone. When we see that, we're seeing something remarkable, that God should take humanity and that he should let humanity do that to him. And then when he rises from the dead, there's been nothing like that. The reversal of death since the creation of the world. He rises from the dead. We look back to that historical moment. We remind ourselves that the God to whom we pray, the Christ in whom we trust, rose from the dead. God raises the dead. And that feeds our prayer life. And you can see that that's exactly what happens. So by the time you get to verse 11, their minds are cleared, their hearts are calmed, their spirits are lifted, their resolve is firm. As they realize what lies ahead of them as the people of God. In fact, they're reminding themselves of the very language that Isaiah has taught them earlier. Word for word, in an earlier part, here they are saying this. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. They're celebrating something that was future to them. And future to us. The final day 
when everything shall be resolved, the reconciliation of all things, when God will finally bring his Zion, his assembly, his church, his people home to their eternal dwelling place. That's where we're headed. And these people, as they prayed, you see, in the process of prayer, reflecting on what God has done, thinking about what God has said, find their faith fueled as they pray. Waiting time is not wasted time if you take time to pray. And you know, these words were of particular helped people who we discover in the New Testament were waiting. 800 years after Isaiah had written these words, they're waiting. For 400 years of that period, there's been no prophet prophesying in Israel. They've seen the Babylonians come and go, the Persians come and go, they've seen Greece come and go, now they're the Romans, they've come and they've not gone yet. And it seems as if the exile will never be over. It seems as if God will never act. It seems as if all these promises in the Bible are on hold. And yet, there were some people in Jerusalem, like a man called Simeon, we're told in Luke chapter 2. And this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation, that is the comfort of Israel. That word comfort has come up ever since chapter 40 of Isaiah. It's been repeated over and over and over again. It's one of Isaiah's key words to describe the coming of the Messiah. When he comes, God will comfort his people. And those people were waiting. And when this man Simeon sees a little baby being brought into the temple, he goes over because God prompts him and he takes the baby you remember and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The Messiah, Jesus, a light of revelation to those of us who were denied it and glory to his people, Israel. And at that very moment, a lady called Anna happens to come along and we're told that Anna, coming up at that very hour, began to give thanks to God and to speak about this baby to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So in this waiting time, you see, they're provided, those people who were waiting all that time between Isaiah and the coming of the Messiah are given words by the Holy Spirit that they can pray. And as they pray them, they will feed their faith. And here are we tonight, today, this feels like tonight, uh, this morning. Here we are in church and if you're a Christian person, you know that you are a waiting person. We're moving next Sunday to the first Sunday of Advent. means coming. And do you know at Advent, we don't just think about the first coming, we think about the second coming. Advent reminds us, Christmas has just passed and the new Christmas is coming. Advent reminds us that we are in this period of time between Jesus going and Jesus returning. He will appear to all those who are 
waiting for him. He will appear again in power and great glory. We are in that waiting period. We can come to these verses this morning and find comfort for our own hearts and instruction for our own hearts because here we are as God's people and as we look at the world we can think back to what God has done through Moses and particularly in Christ and look forward to what he has promised to do in the future that's still to come that verse 11 still to come and in this moment what do we do we pray we pray to feed our faith When our faith languishes, when our confidence slips, when time passes, we pray to take God's word seriously. We use the arguments that God puts on our lips and we use them to him when we speak to him. Remember in the book of Revelation where right at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22 verse 20, the Lord Jesus says to the apostle John, He who testifies to these things says, the Lord Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And John says, Amen. But doesn't stop there. Can't help himself. The believer can't help himself. When faced with the promise of God, they can't help themselves but pray. And so he goes on, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We have become so trapped by the now, so in bondage to the present, so preoccupied to try and live our lives in the world by getting a few handy hints for how to live a holy life in the world or how to resolve the issues that we're facing in our jobs or in the environment or in politics or whatever, so frightened by what's going on all around us, so absorbed with what's going on either up or down in the, in the, in the issues of Christ's church in the world, that we have forgotten that we are waiting people. This is not our home. Here we have no continuing city. We seek one that is above, that our real goal is not down here but up there. That it's not now but then. And in this waiting time, brothers and sisters, we need to take time to pray. But we also need to take time to listen. I want you to notice that God speaks in verse 12. So we've heard Zion, the people of God, speak. Now we listen to God speak. And I want you to notice, when they were praying, they said, Awake, awake. So God replies, I, I am. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Ego, I, me. I, I am. For each of their cries, there is an equivalent word of God to them. Those same words, ego I me, are the words used by Jesus in John's Gospel when he says, I, I am the way. I, I am the light of the world. I, I am he who comforts you. Here's the Lord God speaking words of comfort to his people and in times waiting times we must take heed of what God says to us back in verse 3 we read this for the Lord comforts Zion he comforts all her waste places he makes her wilderness like Eden 
Her desert, like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. There's God. That's what he's promised to do. So when he says to them, I am the God who comforts you, they're meant to look back and read what that will mean. That's what it will mean. Joy and gladness, thanksgiving and song, a garden instead of a desert, Eden instead of a waste place. I am the God who comforts you. So therefore, verse 12, who are you? You who are on the receiving end of my comfort. You to whom I have made these great and many precious promises. Who are you, he says, that you are afraid of man who dies? Here is the God who comforts you. In northern France, there's a, a tapestry called the Bayou Tra Tapestry. You can see it in Bayou in France. And, and in that tapestry, there is this little vignette of an archbishop. You can tell he's an archbishop. He's got one of those funny hats that they wear. Back in the 13th or whatever century. And um, he's on a horse. And his soldiers are going into battle. And the archbishop is carrying a spear. And... As the soldiers are going forward, you can see the spear of the archbishop is prodding them and pushing them into battle against the English, probably. And underneath, in French, it says, the bishop or the archbishop comforteth his troops. And that's what the Lord is doing here. He says, I'm the Lord that comforts you. And you would think, oh, great. When we went to Canada, we found a different use of the word comforter that we didn't use in, in England. We found a comforter was something that they rolled up at the bottom of your bed and you pulled it up if you needed another blanket. A comforter was a nice warm shawl that you put over yourself. Uh, we'd never, I'd never heard that. Let me tell you, God's comfort is never just a warm shawl that you pull up over yourself when you're cold. Listen to what he's doing here. This is how he's comforting them. He is saying to them, Listen to me. Who are you? You who are a child of God. You who are an heir of glory. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Just think of this. Whether the man is a dictator or a leader or a movement or a false prophet or a suicide bomber or whatever he may be, he is, she is human. That's all they are. They are mortal. That's all. They are going to perish. One out of one people dies. There is no power that will not end up dead. There is no force formed against you that will not end up decimated and non-existent. The Reich that was meant to last a thousand years barely lasted a fraction of history, didn't it? It was all gone. Never to be seen again. Communism that rose up in Marxism in Russia. You remember, we thought it would go on forever and ever. 70 years, over it was, just like that. All praise to Ronald Reagan and Martin Thatcher. Uh, but all praise to God for bringing communism down decisively. Surprising us all. Mortal man that perishes. That's why people are so cynical. 
people in the world, that is. They realize how weak and mortal they are. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. A tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. A person that thinks like Macbeth with his cynical view of life looks at the life of the world and says, that's really all it's about. And if that's all it's about, then it's even more a shame to God's people that we should be afraid of man who is dying. What's happened when we're afraid of people? Well, here's what's happened. You've forgotten the Lord your maker. Look at verse 13 a minute. You fear continually all the day because of the wrath of your oppressor. You're worried all the time about what the people who don't like you are doing to you, saying about you. The pressure that's on you. This is the reality of our life in the world. But what have we forgotten? Do you notice how he brackets his word of rebuke with a reminder of who he is? I, I am the first and the last, he said earlier on. I am the Lord, your maker. He's the one who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And yet you fear continually. That's nonsense. Not only that, do you notice verse 15, the other side of the bracket. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waters roar. Are you afraid of the waters roaring, of the storms that are gathering, of the movements that are threatening? Are you afraid of these things? Well, listen. The very one who stirs up these things is your Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. You need not be afraid, for everything is in his hands. Waking time, waiting time is not wasted time. If you listen, if you listen to God, and if you pray. And thirdly, it's not wasted time if you hope. In verse 16, there is a change of addressee. It isn't as random as you at first might think. If you've been following the passage and you begin really earlier on, maybe about 42 of Isaiah, you'll find that Isaiah is being given lines from a number of characters in the story of redemption. And uh, these characters, there are no prompts, no cues in the text. You have to work them out on the basis of the characters having been introduced earlier on in the story. And we know exactly, there's nobody doubts really who, who this character is here in verse 16. Here is the Lord God talking to the Messiah himself, the servant. And uh, if I can show you this, uh, the, the whole issue of course is about the Exodus earlier on, the servant has been given the job of bringing the people of God out of bondage to sin and into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Earlier on, uh, we read these words, I have put, uh, I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with a shadow of my hand. Earlier on in chapter 50, verse 4, we hear the servant speaking. The servant says this, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. That's the servant speaking. Now he have his father, the Lord 
confirming that I have indeed put my words in your mouth. Then in chapter 49, verse 2, in the second servant song, the servant says this, In the shadow of his hand he hid me. Now the Lord says to him, Here I have sheltered you, covered you in the shadow of my hand. The Lord is consoling, comforting, assuring, reassuring his servant son concerning the work that he is about to do. The hand of God had covered him, so he was unseen. He's not in, in, uh, in open view throughout much of the Old Testament. But one day that hand will be removed and people will see him. There they will see him in his flesh. But even in the days of his flesh, he is never out from under the shadow of the hand of his father who cares for him. Even on the cross, when he's bearing our sin... Bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. Even there, his father's hand cares for him. His father never loved him more than when on that cross he bore your sin and my sin. Those words in his mouth are the very words of God. He is the divine spokesman. We believe the Old Testament to be the word of God because Jesus told us to. We believe the New Testament written by the apostles is the word of God because Jesus informed us that's the way it would be. Everything that Jesus has revealed is the word of God. And as the divine revealer of truth, he enjoys the care and protection of his heavenly father. And what is he coming to do? Look at this, verse 16, the middle of it. He will establish, literally, he will plant you can see that in the footnote. He will plant the heavens. This is the new heavens and the new earth, as Isaiah will show us shortly. The new things that the servant will do will sprout forth. The servant who was himself like a young plant growing out of dry ground comes as the co-creator of the universe to recreate the universe. That's the purpose of his Coming, recreation, the new heavens and the new earth. Not only that, but he will lay the foundations of that new earth. In other words, it will be established by him. It will not be shaken. It will be absolutely firm. And he will say to the people of God, to Zion, you are my people. <clears throat> that was the unique ministry of our Lord Jesus when he came. To come to those who are believers and, and to those who came as most of us have come from Gentile backgrounds. We were not part of the great genealogies of Judaism. We don't have the promises and the patriarchs in terms of our line of uh, genetic descent. We were not a people. Just as for themselves Israel at one point in their disobedience were rejected by God and were called low ami as we find in Hosea not my people and they experienced what it meant to be not the people of God rejected by him and go into go into exile in Babylon but Hosea had another son he called him ami which means my people and that's the word that's used here you are my people. That was God's great promise to Israel at the Exodus. I am your God. You are my people. 
Nobody can break that. It's firm. It's secure. It's final. And if God be for us, brothers and sisters, who can be against us? Our Lord Jesus is the ultimate answer to the issues of this world. He is the one, we are told, who is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the assembly, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that everything he might be preeminent. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through him God will reconcile to himself all things on earth, in heaven, And make peace by the blood of his cross. Brothers and sisters, that is our Lord Jesus. That is our hope. Jesus is our hope. In waiting time, focus on your hope. It is the return of Jesus. It is the new heavens and the new earth. It is the resurrection of the body. It is life everlasting. That is our hope. And in these difficult days when we find ourselves wrestling with all kinds of questions, when we find ourselves asking, when will God act to protect his cause? As his cause seems to be under assault from every direction. Brothers and sisters, here is the answer. Waiting is the time to pray. And waiting is the time to listen. And waiting is the time to hope. To hope in Christ. To hope for that day when the sky shall roll back as a scroll. The Lord shall descend. And we shall know that it is well with our souls. Come Lord Jesus. Father we pray this morning. That you would so lift up our spirits above the, the tumult and the chaos and the questions and the disturbances and the frenetic fear of the world we live in today. And remind us, Lord, that what we're afraid of is something inevitable. We're afraid of death and dying and everybody's going to die until Jesus comes. And we're going to die. We already are. But help us, Lord, we pray to see that so will every enemy of Christ die without hope and without God in the world. And help us in this waiting time to pray. And as we pray, to draw richly from the word of God, to draw deeply, to drink deeply from the river of delights found in Christ. And as we pray, to listen. Listen to your voice as you remind us of who you are and to hope in him who is coming again. And who will appear to those who are waiting for him. We ask you, Lord, please to hasten that day in Jesus' strong name. Amen.